Good morning. Today I'm going to be reading Deuteronomy 11, verses 8 through 25. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. This is the word of the Lord. Our uh, series through the book of Deuteronomy. So if you're new with us, that's why we're reading out of Deuteronomy. We trust and believe that the whole word, uh, all of our Bible is inspired by God and profitable for us and is authoritative over us. So we encourage you to, if you have a Bible, to open it up to Deuteronomy as we uh, preach through Deuteronomy 11 this morning. And one of the best teachers is repetition. Perhaps you know this, even as we've gone through Deuteronomy, it's, uh, in, a, in a way, it's, it's not a second giving of the law uh, precisely, but it is a recapitulation of the law that had been given. So it, the book itself, by very nature, is kind of a repetitious book, and repetition teaches. It's a, a very helpful tool. You know this as a parent. You, you 
teach something, you reinforce it over and over and over and over again, saying the same words. And you, you might even say, like, how many times do I have to tell you blank before you do this thing? Or, or if you, you're trying to get a new subject across, you, repetition, you got to do it over and, and over and over again. Or, or if you're a marketer, like, you get a jingle and you just make that jingle as repetitious as possible so it sticks in their brain and won't come out no matter what. And they're either going to really hate your product or probably buy it at some point because of that jingle, right? You just, you get it out there. You, you get it. If you're going to learn a skill, like you're going to be good at free throws. Here's what you have to do. It's not really a secret. You got to shoot a lot of free throws. Like you just, you just got to go do it. Repetition teaches. And here we have in Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy as a whole is this book where it's they're on the edge of the promised land, and, and Moses is, in a sense, he's being repetitious. He's telling them some things that have already been written down and, and written for them to know, and he's, he's telling them again. But even within the, the structure now, we've gone through chapters 1 through 10. Here we are in chapter 11. He's repeating some of the stuff that he's already said. And in chapter 11, the, the very pattern of this chapter is repetitious. So here we have in chapter 11, another call to these Israelites on the brink of the promised land. As they're going in, another call, another encouragement, another exhortation from Moses to say, you need to love God and obey his word. And God is making clear through Moses how God's people are to respond to him. And he said it a number of times, hoping that this repetition will teach a, a infamously kind of rebellious people who have, who have not kept God's word, loved God with all of their heart. And so Deuteronomy is recapitulating, giving the law to this new generation so that they would all obey it and love God. And so far, it's interesting that we haven't actually gotten into the law yet. I mean, it, not the, the actual statutes and, and what the requirements are that were written down. Like, he's just been saying, obey the law, keep the law, do the law. We're getting ready to get into it. And so 11 kind of closes a, a section of Deuteronomy and, and prepares us for what's next. There's no law actually have, has actually been given yet of the, the statutes for Israel, uh, but he's given over and over again, keep it, do it. Obey it, because that's important before we move into what's next. And so chapter 11, it's this repeated call to full devotion to God, to give God their wholehearted allegiance, their wholehearted obedience. And I think that all of chapter 11 is actually building off of what is summed up for us in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. What does the Lord require of you? Fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways, love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes. And the pattern of chapter 11 is going to take different aspects of 12 and 13, and it's going to state those as a requirement for the people of God, and then it's going to give us a, kind of a, a lesson and a, an illustration of why that requirement is needed. And so those verses, 12 and 13 of chapter 10, are referenced, and then you're going to see a lesson, an illustration to affirm that you should keep this requirement. So chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, it reverberates throughout chapter 11, and we see it in verse 1 of chapter 11. Notice the similarity in language. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. God has declared for Israel, you are my chosen people. You are my treasured possession. I've redeemed you. And out of all the nations, I've chosen you, not because you were great, but because I chose you, because I love you, because I love you. He's declared that to it. He's displayed his love to them, redeeming them out of Egypt, sustaining them in the wilderness, leading them all the way up to the brink of the promised land as they are here. They are his treasured possessions, his redeemed ones, the ones he loves. And as they move forward into the promised land by God's grace and by God's power, here's what he desires for 
them. He does not desire that they respond to him with some sort of cold-hearted obedience or some sort of cool obligation to somehow appease this God. He wants their hearts. He wants them to love him. I mean, in a way, this is a repetition of, of what we saw in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What shall you do? He, he starts with love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He desires then, this God, both their actions and their affections. Not one or the other, though they go together. He wants both of those things. The covenant that he's made with them, is, it is a legal Covenant, right? It's, it's very kind of legalese, even in how it's written out, but it's loving. Covenant is binding and has stipulations, and it's loving. It's, it's saying from God, this holy God, to this people, that he wants relationship with them, and that he wants relationship with them in an ongoing way. And so what they are to do with that covenant, that legal and loving, that binding but close relationally covenant, is to respond to it with, with loving God and obeying his commands. So this requirement in verse 1, to love and obey, is then followed by this repeated pattern that we're going to see in chapter 11 by a lesson. And the first one is kind of the lesson of history. So the requirements in verse 1, verses 2 through 7, is the lesson, the lesson of history. Listen to verse 2 through 7. Consider, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all of Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. We have to recall that, that Moses is speaking to a, a transitional generation of sorts. This isn't the kind of the generation that came out of Egypt. They were along the way, right? Maybe as young ones. This isn't the ones that were the, the infamously rebellious generation of the wilderness who rejected God's word and hardened their hearts. This is kind of the transitional one. They're, they're the children of them, right? They're the ones that are they're kind of the transition from the exodus to, to the promised land. And it's a, a key generation. They are the ones that are kind of bridging that gap from exodus and Egypt to the promised land. And this generation, it seems, Moses is, is clear that they are prepared uniquely to be this transitional generation by the Lord's discipline that they have seen with their own eyes. See, they had to learn the lesson of history, and they had had it lived out in front of them. This lesson that was meant to instruct them or, or discipline them, teach them as this transitional generation. Israel is not to look back and, and wonder, how did we get to this place? What on earth is going on here? This is the generation that's to know exactly what has happened before them, exactly what they're going into, they are to look back and see the Lord's hand in every bit of it, teaching them, training them, disciplining them even to know the lesson of history. And the lesson of history is a lesson of what God did. Four times, he did, he did, he did. What God did in history was meant to instruct them, teach them, discipline them so that they would consider it. Look back and consider what God has taught you in history. He says, look back at what he did in Egypt. You remember what happened in Egypt? 
Moses went to Pharaoh and said, you need to let these people go at the command of the Lord. And do you remember what Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2? This is just a, a kind of a, a flavor of where Pharaoh is. And he said, well, who's the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And in a large sense, the signs and miracles and plagues that were in response that, that God used to bring out Israel were an answer to that question, who is the Lord? God shows them his power and his might, his greatness with these plagues and signs that he displayed in Egypt. So Pharaoh could know who this Lord is, at least a part of him, that he's this great God, that he is Lord over all, that no one stands over him. So Pharaoh's hardened heart saw, along with all of Egypt and Israel, the greatness of God as he stretched out his arm in these great signs and plagues that he poured out on Egypt. They also saw what God did to the army of Egypt at the Red Sea. If you look in Exodus chapter 14, they're coming out across the waters, and that's where we pick up Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 23. It says, the Egyptians pursued after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire, and in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire, and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. I'll just skip one verse and pick up in verse 27. So Moses, he stretched out his hand over the sea as they had already gone through, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. And Israel looks back on this, and they can recognize that God had given them that victory, they thought they were trapped, and God says, just be quiet. I'm going to work salvation for you. They part the sea. They walk through on dry ground. And then, where they had just walked through, the Egyptians try to do the same thing, and they are completely covered over. Israel had to have recognized that God had given that great victory. And Exodus chapter 15 is them singing of this great victory. And that's a song that, that didn't last very long. And then they made it to the wilderness. And that's the next thing of history there to consider. Consider the wilderness, what God did in the wilderness. I mean, that, that is a summary of so many things, right? The wilderness, good and bad, mostly bad, predominantly bad, a place of rebellion, a place of sin, a place that still in the midst of that, God sustained them, that their clothing didn't wear out, that they, were, they had enough to eat in the middle of a wilderness because God rained down bread from heaven, a place that's it's a thirsty place, but what does God do in the midst of there's no water? He provides Water. God is teaching them. He was teaching them that man doesn't live on bread alone. We already saw that in the book of Deuteronomy. While Israel, they were displaying, showing themselves to be this rebellious people, this hard-hearted uh, nation. God is showing himself as dependent, trustworthy, faithful, gracious, and merciful, very patient. Moses says, consider that. Listen to that history. And then the fourth thing there to consider is what he did to Datham and Abiram. This is interesting that he singles this out. Out of all the things he could have singled out in the wilderness, there are many episodes in there that are noteworthy. 
Here's one that is for sure noteworthy. You know, it's interesting in how he says, he points them out by name here in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. Dathan and Abiram, they, they make a list and we know that God did something to them. We find out what he did to them in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16 is a very interesting chapter as a whole. It speaks of Korah's rebellion. And listen to verses 1 through 7 and the rebellion that Korah started to lead. Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, there they are, and the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, they took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. For in all the congregation you are holy, every one of them, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly and above the Lord, or above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who he is, or who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one who does whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire in them. And puts incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. You've you got to wonder how that night's sleep went for them. And they put themselves out there, and now Moses is saying, a lot's on the line. Rest well. We'll find out in the morning. I think Moses probably slept all right. Not sure about the rest. We pick up the story in verse 19. Korah, he assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. We know what happened next, right? That we've talked about already, it's been repeated a few times in the book of Deuteronomy, that the Lord is a consuming fire. Fire came out and consumed Korah and these men. Now what's interesting is that fire wasn't unprecedented. Now, that had happened before. Remember the sons of Aaron? Remember the, the issue with the unprecedented, un unauthorized fire that they offered to the Lord and how the Lord consumed them. Or Numbers 11, there are some men consumed by the fire of the Lord. But none of them are, at least in those few cases, uh, they're consumed by the fire of the Lord. But Dathan and Abiram is a little different. The fire wasn't distinct. That had happened a few times. But Dathan and Abiram, something unique did happen. That's in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 12. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. So they're adding on to their rebellion. They're behind Korah, they're for him and against Moses and Aaron. And even he tells them to come up and says, we're not doing it. Is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you also make yourself a prince over us? Pretty hard accusations against Moses, the one that the Lord speaks to face to face. But moreover, have you not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of the fields and vineyards? Will you put out the eyes of these men? Will you not come up? And Moses, he was very angry, and he said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. Good news to hear. You know, I, Moses is a man of integrity. I'm not going to touch their donkey. And I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company, before the Lord tomorrow, and we're going to see what happens, Right? And every one of you take a censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord a censer, 250 of them, and Aaron and his censer. So every man took a censer and he put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron 
And Korah assembled all the congregation against him at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. There's the Lord's judgment. It's clear. It's not you, Moses and Aaron, that I'm going to get rid of. I'm going to judge the people that are in rebellion to me. So get, rid of, get clear of them. But they fall on their faces. They say, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So Korah is up at the temple. Dathan and Abiram are not. And listen to what the Lord does. Moses rose, and he went to Datham and Abiram and the elders. They followed him, and they spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham and Abiram. And Datham and Abiram came out, and they stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been on my own accord, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Very specific requirements there. Verse 31, as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. It's a distinct death. Moses is saying, you remember that? Probably hard to get that out of your memory. Maybe as some of these generation would have been young children or looking onto this, like he said, look back and, and learn the lesson there. This is a distinct death. And what is it supposed to teach? Verse 7, he says, your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. The, the history of all these, uh, of looking back to the Exodus and the Red Sea and the wilderness and Dathan and Byron, that's a history of rebellion, of people who rejected and bucked against the authority of God and his commands, who didn't respond well to the Lord's kindness and goodness. They, they didn't respond with love and obedience to him. And he says, look back on that, because this is a lesson on how in the midst of rebellion, God showed his greatness. He showed it through judgment. He judged these people for their rebellion and their sin. The history lesson warns, it instructs, it disciplines that Israel is to know the, the power and the greatness of God and his judgment against sin. And this history lesson, rightly considered, takes us to the requirement of verse 1. You shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his commandments, his rules, his commandments always. That's what's required. When you look back at history, you say, what should I do in light of this? What was God disciplining us to do? He was disciplining you to do that, to love and obey, to rightly respond to who God is, to what he has done, to what he has promised. And the right response is loving him and obeying him. Don't follow in that path. Learn the lesson of history. But the pattern is then going to be repeated. Verse 8, we're going to have a requirement, and then following verse 8, the, the kind of the illustration, the lesson from it. The requirement, verse 8, apparently repetition is needed. It says, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you're going over to possess. They're to know the Lord's power. They've seen it. They, they saw the earth literally swallow up families and all that they had and close back again. 
They saw the Lord's power and his judgment, and they're to consider it. And their consideration of it is to lead them to obeying him. But notice what it says. I command you today these things that you may be strong. What's the key to Israel's strength? It's not their numbers. What's the key to their strength in moving to the promised land? It's not their fighting prowess. It's not their military strategy. It's not their great diplomacy. It's not their ability. It's not their military might. Their strength in moving forward into the promised land. What is it? It's their obedience. God didn't use the, the wilderness time to hone their fighting skills. He didn't say, let's set up some targets out here and let's make sure you guys know how to use a spear and a sword and some bows and arrows so that when you get to those tall walls, you're going to aim well. He didn't say, you know what, start a military school. Let's get your great minds together and let's make sure we have the strategy right because those are tall towers that you're going to face. And their men are numerous. It's not what he does. What does he teach in the wilderness? Man doesn't live by bread alone. He's teaching them dependence upon him and his word. He's teaching them that their strength is going to come from their obedience. It's not going to come from who they are, but depending on who he is. Don't we see this so clearly played out? And Joshua goes into the promised land, he goes to Jericho. And here's the battle of Jericho. This is not a place of great numbers taking over, or military strength and might being displayed, or, or their mind and their strategy taking over. Here's what they did. All they did was march. But they did it in obedience. God told them to do that. And where was their strength? In their obedience to God. They didn't take over because they had some sort of military might. They kept over, take over because they were obedient to God's word. They just marched. Down came the walls. Victory comes to Israel. Compare that with what we heard in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 41. Remember when they tried to go into the land, when Moses said, don't go in. God's not with you, and they try to go in, and they're defeated sharply. They attacked the Amorites, and they lost. And that wasn't a loss because that they... Well, you didn't think out the strategy well. You just didn't have the numbers. You didn't have the high ground. That's a loss because Moses said, don't go in. God tells you not to go in. Don't disobey. They disobeyed and they lost. Moses tells them before they go in the promised land, your strength is going to be in your obedience. And beloved, our strength as a church, as the people of God, is never going to be in our own might. Never going to be in our ability we're not looking for the numbers to turn in our favor in order to, to have strength in this world. Our strength is in our obedience. It's by obedience to God that we live in his strength. It's dependence upon him that looks like obedience that we're sustained. Man doesn't live by bread alone. I'm reminded of this when we, we turn to Jesus in the Great Commission. He gathers his disciples and he tells them this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. All authority is Jesus's, and so these puny little disciples are to go? That seems backwards, right? Like, give us some of that, right, so that we can go make disciples. That's a pretty tall task. All the nations, every tongue. Like you want everybody to know the name, your name, you want them to believe in the gospel, and you're, you have the authority, why don't you share some of that to us? What's the strength for the Great Commission, to carrying that out, to making disciples? It's not, we have authority. We're strong. 
We, we have ability. We've got everything. For, it's none of that. The strength for the Great Commission is not in us, but it's in him. He has all authority. But here's what he promises. I'm with you always. It's, it's Christ in us and through us, isn't it? He has all authority, so obey and go make disciples. Make disciples in dependence upon this authority, and he's with you always. That's what we're doing. Our strength is not in us. Our strength is in our obedience to what he has told us to do. He has all authority. We go make disciples. We're never called to be awesome. We're called to be obedient. We're never called to be impressive. We're called to be faithful. What a relief that is, right? As people that, let's be honest, we're not that awesome all the time. Probably ever, we're not that awesome. We're, are we impressive? I don't, maybe some people think we're impressive. Probably not that impressive. Paul even says that to a church, and we should probably hear those words, like not many of you were the impressive people. Wise, strong, well thought of by the world. That's, that's us. That's a description of us too, right? We're not the impressive ones. We're not the awesome ones. Paul says not many of you are strong, but God uses those. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the things that are not to put to nothing the things that are. That's what God, he loves that. He loves to use the, the weaklings. He, he loves to use those who are just dependent, have, have nowhere to turn but him. He loves to use those things. He, he knows, God knows that we're beset with weakness, but Paul says that's a place you can boast. Because in your weakness, then God is strong. Why? Because our strength is in our dependence upon God, our obedience to God. When we depend upon God and we're obedience to God, that, that, that's where our strength flows. We're to live our lives in love to God and obedience to God. And our strength flows from him. That's our strength. So the pressure's not on us to be great. Pressure's on God to be great, which is, you know, guess what? It's going to be all right. God is great. The pressure's on him. He can, he can handle that. It's no pressure at all. Our role is to be faithful. Our role is to be obedient and to boast in the Lord all the crazy things, the amazing things he keeps doing through weaklings like us. Our strength is in our obedience. And that's why the requirement to keep the whole command is repeated over and over again. Verse 1, verse 8. We're going to see it again. And here's the lesson that affirms that in verses 9 through 12. Again, the pattern, the requirement, the lesson. He wants them to live long in the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. He's moved them from the lesson of history now to kind of a lesson of the land. It's interesting that the land is teaching something in a way. And Datham and Abiram, they, they complained. Do you remember what they said? You took us out of this land flowing with milk and honey in Egypt, which is a weird way to assess Egypt for slaves. It might have had some milk and honey, but not for them. And they complained to Moses, you took us out of that place and here, where are we going? And God continually reaffirms, like the place you're going is an, an abundant place, a place flowing with milk and honey. He points out that the promised land is not like Egypt, where likely what would happen, the slaves would do the work of agriculture. And, and Egypt is well known for their irrigation, right? They'd use the Nile and they'd irrigate these things so that they could have crops and vegetables. And there's some translations that even include something about feet here. I don't know if you have that translation. Something about uh, you're, you've 
sowed these seeds and irrigated it with your feet, something along those lines. And it's a hard translation to figure out, but maybe the concept is like there was something that they were doing physically, even with their feet, to get the water where they needed to go to make the crops grow. The slaves were doing those kind of things, right? That was hard work. It wasn't a a land flowing with milk and honey. And, And you know what? The land is teaching something. And he says, there's a land that you're going into that's better than this. Now, there's been a debate in my home group a few times about whether you should water your lawn or not. I'll leave the kind of specifics up to my group to fill you in on if you'd like. But here's the thing. We don't have to debate this if it actually rains, you know? It's like if, if it rains and our yards would stay green all the time, we wouldn't even be talking about whether we're overwatering and that uh, our, our grass is the most uh, overwatered crop that we have in the world. Um, we wouldn't have to have that debate at all if it would rain consistently so our grass would stay green and we wouldn't have to worry about it. But instead, we spend a little bit of time on that every now and then. But the promised land, here's a land where you don't have to have that debate. You don't have to have the slaves, you know, using even their feet to, to make irrigation channels, to make the, the vegetables grow, where there's not even this labor or watering required because the eyes of the Lord are on this land. The eyes of the Lord are the, are the kind of eyes that if, if his eyes are on something, you don't need any other eyes on it, Right? His eyes are on the promised land. His eyes are pointing to his care, his protection, his provision in the land. And, and the description that Moses gives of this promised land is Edenic. Here's a place where the water is just kind of bubbling up like Eden. It's garden-like. It's abundant. It just drinks. It doesn't need to be irrigated. You don't need to figure out the right channels for the water. It just drinks water all the time. This is an ideal place then to not only to live, but here's what Moses is saying. This is an ideal place to love God an ideal place to obey God. He's provided so much. He's given so much. He wants so much good for you. It's seen in the land. It's displayed for you. It's a place to love and obey God. Verse 13, here's the repeated pattern again, the requirement kind of restated again. Here's what the land should teach. If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain, the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Like there's the pattern again, just as the lesson of history was, was them looking back and seeing, here's what God did. The lesson of the land is looking forward a little bit and saying, here's what God will. Here's what he is doing. The land is the, he will do these things. He is the one who will, because he is the sovereign one over all. The he wills are given to Israel. He will give the rain. He will give the grain. Moses is looking at all their life, and he's seeing all of it, and he's giving them this same view as well, that all of your life in the land is to be seen theologically. There's a theological view of all things here, not just your life in the temple, your life out in the field, the agriculture, everything, the weather, all of life is to be seen theologically for them, that God is present and active in it all, that all of life is lived under God. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, it's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo. It means before the face of God, in the presence of God. To live, quorum Deo, is to live all of life under God, in subjection to him, in submission to him, as if every part of our life matters, that all of it is before him and to be given up, offered up to him. This is how God's people are to live. The promised land. And, and living quorum Deo, before the face of God in the promised land, 
It's not about just being at the temple and worshiping God. It's about being in the field and knowing God's provision and worshiping and loving and obeying him there. So loving and obeying God everywhere. It reminds us as God's people that we're not to divide our lives into areas where we love and obey God and love and obedience to God matter here in this area and then to other areas where it's a little bit okay to do something different. Where I don't have to worship God in this area because this is a different area. And chopping off our lives and compartmentalizing them wrongly. We aren't to do that. Obedience and love to God matter all over. Every area of our lives is like that. We can't divide what, what matters, where love and obedience matters to God and where it doesn't because it matters that we love and obey God everywhere. Whether we're doing laundry on a Monday or corporate worship on a Sunday. Whether we're at work or whether we're gathering together with our home group, whether we're at our table sharing a meal or we're at the Lord's table with one another as believers. You remember what Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, everyday normal things. What are you to do? You're to do it for a purpose. You're to do it to the glory of God. So culturally, we've, we've really received this. And so around here, most of the time, it's, you know, if you're gonna start a formal meal, like you start it with a prayer. That's great. I'm not pushing back on that. Jesus did that. Good. Keep doing that. But you know what else it says? Not just whether you eat or drink, but everything you do. Whatever you do, all of life is to be lived as if we're saying, God, may we do whatever we're doing, this thing, in order to honor and glorify you. Not just our eating and drinking, although we want to honor there. We want to honor in whatever we do. All of life is quorum Deo, before the face of God. All of life is to be lived for God's glory. So that's who God's people are. They are before the face of God, living before him, underneath him, in submission to him, and that's how they're to view all of their lives. And that's what Moses is trying to get to them. You're going into the promised land, and and the land itself is, is pointing the way for you. It's telling you that all of life is to be lived for the glory of God. It matters that Israel sees all of life theologically, because the temptations are coming. If you look in verse 16 and 17, he says, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve all the gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off of the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. So when they see a drought, they're, they're to view theologically, say, what's going on here? They're not just natural causes. God is at work here. He's over all things. Think of what God has stored up for them in the promised land. These are all positive. Like the promised land's ready to go. It's being watered. His eyes are upon it. He wants you to go in and enjoy this. It is to be received. It is to be enjoyed. They are to go in there and and live in that whole place before the face of God. But there's a danger lurking for this infamously rebellious and stubborn people. The, The danger is of drifting outside of that theological view. And starting to seeing things through a different lens. They have naturally drifting hearts. And the comfort of the promised land and the, the bounty and abundance that is there is uh, an easy thing to just grow used to. Comfort can sing a siren tune, lull their hearts to sleep, and they can forget about God, the one who would brought them in and provided so much. And they can turn to these other nations that are there and that are present along with them. And these nations, they don't believe these things about what's going on in the land. Here's what they believe. Our God brings the rain. Our God, this fertility God, he brings the livestock. He brings children. He brings the blessing. And so they're going to be tempted 
to turn to these other gods and, and look to these gods for, for power to produce something in the land and in their livestock. And, and Moses says, be careful lest they, they sway you away from the one true living God and start to think that maybe the rain is from Baal after all, like the other Canaanites say. And so you start worshiping, after, worshiping him. God warns, if you go that way, the one who is overall is going to display his judgment and anger and it's going to be displayed in the land. The, the abundance is going to be cut off. And so the land itself is a lesson because in the land, that is, the land itself is before the face of God, in the presence of God. So the land teaches, the land encourages, and what's encouraging is verse 13, obey these commands. The lesson of the land ends with the same encouragement as the lesson of history. And so it's repeated. And that's what Moses does in verse 18. He's going to repeat again the command, repetition teaches, and he's going to summarize you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. That's what he wants. Heart and soul, again, the totality of the person. God wants all of it to be his and to be offered up to him. All of the, the person, the totality of the person is to be controlled by the words of God, be submission in submission to God's word. There's no sense that Moses or God were ever only calling for outward conformity. This is inward and outward, Right? God wants hearts. He wants souls. Outward obedience is always an inward matter, and God is aiming at their hearts so that it would work its way out. And where there's disobedience, where they are living in their own strength, they have an inward problem. So he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. To keep the heart and the soul under the operation of the word. That's the summary of, of chapters 1 through 11. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. Keep every part of your life just have the word of God embedded into that area. Israel shouldn't go into the promised land wondering, you know what, wonder what God wants us to do when we get there. They know what they have to do. Live in obedience to God. Love him. They know what they're to be about. As God's people today, we, we often wonder, like, man, what's God's will for my life? You ever asked that question? You ever heard it being asked? And we throw around God's will for me is this, and God's will for me is that. We throw that around very quickly, and we question, is this God's will for my life? And God has been just as clear with us as he was with them. It was clear. Here's what you do in the land. They don't need to wonder. Obey the law. Keep God's word. Love God with all of your heart. We don't need to wonder what's God's will for us. I love the summary statement that Paul gives, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Hey, here's God's will for your life, your sanctification. He wants you to be his. He wants you to be holy. In other words, he wants you to live all of your life, Coram Deo, before his face, all of it offered up to him. He wants you to be holy in every aspect of your life. That's what God wants of you. You're wondering what God's will is. There it is. He wants you to be his, and you are to, if you are his, you are to live this holy life before him for his glory. How do we know what that looks like? How do we know what a holy life looks like? Well, the word. All right, again, we're, we're going to the word. How do we go about that sanctification? How do we go about living all of life, Coram Deo, before the face of God? The word. God's word, his commands, his promises. It shows us who he is, what he's like, what he's done, what he's promised. And God's word shouldn't be any less prominent now in our lives than it was to be for them. You keep hearing it repeated over and over again. Don't hear that repetition is like, okay, we get it. We know. Like, well, the repetition needs to hit us in the right spot too. We're no less dependent upon God's word now than they were. And verse 18 continues. Here's what you should do. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
And you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. All time, everywhere, they are to be a people, a community that lives like Corumdale before the face of God, that keeps God's word central to their lives. It's, it's to be ever present in everything. It's to be on their bodies. So there's question, is this uh, literal? Like, does he want them to put the amulets and the phylacteries on their head and the amulets on their arms to have this word? Maybe. But he wants it to be on their bodies. He wants it to be on their lips and, and on their lips to different generations, on their homes. In other words, he is saying you need to have this word embedded down into your lives. Reminders are to be all over the place. Gates, homes, arms, faces, everywhere. Put those reminders everywhere so that you do that. Hobby Lobby, they love this, right? Like, <laughs> put it everywhere. Mug, uh, sign, paper. It's every, we'll put it on everything. We'll put something on everything for you to purchase, right? They love this. For Christmas, we, there, I don't remember if we got this for our nephew or not, but he got this Where's Waldo book, and I just wanted to like, take that thing and look at it all day. Like, I'm low. Find Waldo on every page, right? But I, on every page, there's Waldo, and there's a few other things. Like, he has a, a dog and a wizard. There's all sorts of things. Don't be too harsh for me for saying dog and wizard. I'm sure they have names and that they're all great. But on every page is Waldo and then all these things to find. And so it's embedded. Every page, you're, you're going to find it. You're going to look for it. And you point of all of the word, all everywhere, embedded into our lives is to be the word. And the point of all of that word that's to be embedded on our lives everywhere is not to just have it put up as a sign and just be represented outwardly. The point of that word everywhere is pointing us to love God, to obey his commands, to do what he wants us to do. The, the point is, is found in verse 22. Here's what you're to do. If you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, holding fast to him, that's the point. I post it everywhere if you have to, right? Tattoo it on your arm, if, whatever. Like, the point is to love God and obey him, to have that word embedded down into our lives. Look, he says to do it, walk in it, and hold fast. But notice what he says here, hold fast to him. I mean, it's not just about, like, robotic obedience. It's about relationship to him, and right relationship to God is always found in obedience to what he said because we trust him, because we love him. And so we do exactly what he says with his strength. It's about relationship this is the one who chose them, redeemed them. He's giving them the promised land. This is the one who's trustworthy. He's great. He's shown his power. And so he's saying, keep the word. Verse 23 continues, the, the Lord will drive out then all the nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be the, from the wilderness of the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. And no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he has promised. Though the nations in the promised land are mightier than they are, have fortified cities, have greater armies, though all that is true, here's what's going to happen. God is mightier than them, and he will see to his promises being carried out. He will give them the full extent of the promised land without exception. This is what he tells them. God is committing committed to delivering upon his promises. And he uses the lesson here. What's the lesson he's giving them? The lesson of consequences to teach them this, to teach them obedience as God's people, moving into God's place with God's word. They are to live in love to God and obedience to God and their lives, the way they live their lives has consequences. They couldn't put, be put more starkly than verse 26 and following. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey 
the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And they are not beyond the Jordan west, are they not beyond the Jordan west of the road toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the yoke of Morah? For you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes of the rules that I am setting before you today. He puts before him blessing and curse. And one commentator, I think, helps us when he says that to be blessed is to benefit from the full scope of the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises in terms of population growth, length of life, prosperity, and national security in the land. All of these are before them. Here's the blessing he wants to bestow upon them as his chosen people, his treasured possession. But to be cursed means missing out on these blessings. And here's what he says it hinges on. Love and obedience. Verse 27 and 28. Love, keep these things. They, they are going to hinge on this thing. They show us the way. The blessing and the curse are both put in front of them. And they're both put in front of them to promote them, promote love and obedience. Love to God. Obey God. Here's the good that he wants to do to you. God wants them, by even laying out blessing and curse in front of them before they go in, he wants them to choose life. And he uses the lesson of consequences because God loves them. And he puts those consequences in front of them to both encourage obedience and discourage disobedience. To encourage and promote love toward him and discourage the consequences of sin that would come with their disobedience. And so what God knows is that it's important for them to take a good look. Take a good look at these consequences. Take a good look at sin and curses. And think through that carefully and take a good look at obedience and its consequences. They're very different. And they're meant to promote obedience. Keep this word. Consequences. Especially declared in advance, they, they teach a lesson, don't they? And it's important for God's people to heed that lesson. It's important for God's people to take a good look at the consequences of both sin and disobedience and obedience and love towards God. In our lives... And the way we live our lives, our lives have consequences. The way we live has consequences. Now for us, we, we don't have Mount Gerizim on one side and Mount Ebal on the other side. The promised land isn't before us in the same way. But those separate mountains, they stood as a testimony to Israel as the consequences of their lives and the way they choose to live. One stood as a testimony to this is what happens when you disobey. This is what happens when you live in sin. And the other one said, here's what stands as a testimony. Here's what happens to you if you obey and love God. We don't have those separate mountains, but we have something even more substantial than a mountain. Can you imagine looking at these mountains, like a substantial amount of things, like looking at them, like blessing, curse, disobedience, obedience. Substantial, but we have something more. Way more substantial than mountains to look at that testifies to the consequences of sin. Speaking of the cross, the cross of the Son of God testifies that something in this good creation that God has given has gone horribly wrong. That this would have to happen. What the cross testifies to us is the curse of sin. The cross shows what sin and disobedience leads to. The consequences of sin, the scripture is clear, leads to death. And this is what it should look like. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, 
he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore sins in his body on the tree. That's a cursed way to die. This is what sin does. This is what has gone horribly wrong is sin has entered in the, into this good creation that God has given. And here, the cross stands as a testimony. Here's the consequences of sin. It's horrific. You want to look away. If you were there, you'd probably be embarrassed that this was happening, that you were in its midst. This is the consequence of sin. That's not all that's put before us in the cross, is it? Praise be to God. Put before us in the cross is not just the curse of sin, but the blessing that comes. In 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And listen to this last part. By his wounds, we don't face that curse. We're healed. Wounds heal. It's in Christ, trusting in Christ, that we can be included. It's by his wounds that we can be healed. Not our wounds. We don't get what we deserve. What we should get is what Christ got on the cross. And what we do get if we receive Jesus, if we trust in him, is that his wounds heal us. And we need to take a good look at both. Can I encourage you, exhort you, plead with you to take a good look at both? Let's put the cross before us and look at both. Consider sin and its consequences. It's horrific. Sin is worse than we think. Its consequences are worse than we can imagine. But then can I encourage you, believer, unbeliever, can I encourage you to also look and see that wounds can heal and to receive that as well? There's healing. It's also held in front of us. The blessing of life with God and not just now, but it starts to overflow and spill over into eternity. And what we do when we put this before us is that we can now plead you to be reconciled to God and implore you to choose life because that's what's offered there in this horrific scene and beautiful scene at the same time is life is before us, blessing and curse, and we're saying repent of your sin and, hey, and take the blessing. How do, you, how do you go between my sin and this is the consequences deserved to, to healing and, and being my wounds being taken so that I can be healed. The difference between taking the curse of sin and getting healing from our sin is what we do with our sin. And the Bible is repeatedly gives us this lesson to repent of our sin. Turn away from it. Trust in God. Repent of your sin. And then here's what we know that we can say he himself bore our sins in his body. So that by his wounds we are healed. It's by faith that we're saved and experience the blessing of life not just now, but that flows over into eternity. And church, what we need is repetition. It teaches us. We need to hold the cross in front of us. It's a great teacher. It's not just a teacher, it's necessary. Those who don't want this repetition, like move away from this repeated message you keep giving, stop holding up the cross in front of us, don't like the look of it, or we've heard about that. Those who don't want it need it even more. Are we, repetition is necessary we need to repeatedly come back to the cross and see this is what sin deserves and, and yet in Christ, this is what we can have if we trust in him. That God is so holy that this is what he does to sin and yet God is so good that he will spare that of sinners if we trust in the one he's already poured it out on. We need repetition. And church, he gave us a sacred symbol, a meal together to repeat it. We call it the Lord's Supper. It's where we celebrate the work that Jesus has done. And that by his wounds, we are healed. We remember that in this meal. So we remember the body that was broken, the blood that was poured out, the curse of sin landed, 
squarely on Jesus. But for those who trust in him, that's the only place it lands. And we go free because of what he has done. His wounds heal us and are healing us and will heal us. So if that's you, if you're in Christ, if you trusted in him, that's how you take the meal. That's the spirit of this meal. You look forward to the day that he comes and finally and fully heals all wounds that sin has caused in you and that you have caused through your sin. If you're not a believer, we'd ask you to instead, don't take this meal. Instead, please take Jesus. Trust in him so that you can say, if you've trusted and fully in him, that he himself has bore my sins in his body on the tree so that by his wounds, I'm healed. Trust in Jesus. Don't take this meal. Let's pray together. pray. Father, we are grateful that you are so repetitive with us. We need it, God, because we're sinful. And it's so easy for us to take our eyes off what we should have them on constantly. And that's you, Lord. And you are so faithful to repeat truth to remind us of your faithfulness to warn us Lord of your discipline we thank you God that you have shown us so clearly what it is to know you what it is to walk in obedience and love and trust The message is simple. God, it's reinforced over and over. Trust and obey. And yet we find ourselves at times just drowning because we don't look to you in faith for the strength to do it. We forget, Lord, that we are incapable in and of ourselves to sustain Obedience in our lives apart from your strength. Lord, we're grateful that through that understanding we see our dependence on you through our failures, God. We're reminded of how miserable it is to live life with our eyes on other things and our hearts chasing after things that are temporary and vain. Lord, we know that you want our hearts to change. We know that your mission in our lives is to form Christ in us. Help us to yield to that. Help us to reflect, Lord, even today, this afternoon, as we go home, Lord, help us to reflect on our own lives, to self-assess by the power of your spirit, Lord. Help us to see those blind spots and those weaknesses, God, that that we don't see, those things that we pursue, those, those weaknesses, those cracks, God, that we need you to expose and then to deal with. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, that ultimately, through Christ, we know our position is secure. 
But thank you, God, that you are faithful to not allow us to get lazy and to be lazy in that truth, Lord. You want us to walk with you right now because of who we are. Help us to care about that more than anything else in this world. In Christ's name, amen.